นโมทัสสะบุกวาทูอะระหัตุสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะบุกวาทูอะระหัตุสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะบุกวาทูอะระหัตุสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังดัมมังสังขังนามัสสะข้อข
Now, of course, it's uh, conventionally speaking important that we make the right decision. There's a lot at stake. Fear of loss. and and, uh, You don't want to get casual about leaving your close friends behind. People can just make casual, rash decisions about these things and and get themselves into situations that they really regret afterwards. And then the regret becomes something you've got to deal with. And certainly... As we're getting older, we want to think about uh, where our companionship comes from. Yeah. It's not the idea of just moving to a nice sunny place is perhaps not always a good idea. You see people do this sometimes, the, the preference for nice warm weather over Northumberland weather. You just make a rash decision and leave all your friends and companions behind and then you you move to a nice sunny climate, and uh, but then when you get into some sort of a difficulty... You have nobody to turn to, and so yes, it's a it's an important consideration leaving behind companions, and it's not just a case of uh, uh, heedless attachment. Yeah. There's an appreciation, a natural appreciation, of the goodness, the beauty of friendship, and in particular spiritual friendship. Yeah, a, uh, spiritual companionship is a uh, is a tremendous. Uh, uh, a tremendously important aspect of, of the refuges. Yeah, the Buddha referred to it as something that's absolutely essential, spiritual companionship. Yeah. Trying to do this thing on our own is, uh, is really unnecessarily difficult. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's an important consideration. But if we are holding on to the idea that I've got to get it right, then what does that do to the mind? What does that do to the heart? Yeah. If we hold on to anything with desire, like the desire to be sure, the desire to know, the desire to be right, it generates a counterforce of the fear of failing, the fear of not knowing, the fear of making the wrong decision. And then that fear, of course, clouds the issue. So how can we... How can we contemplate this? What decision should I take? Should I move? Should I stay? Or like in a job also, the people often this comes up for people. Should I? My boss is a tyrant, an absolute abusive tyrant, um, but there's nothing I can do about it, and I've only got two years to go before retirement, and if I leave now, I lose my pension. Yeah, can be a real. Real question. Should I stay and put up with it? Am I colluding with this abuse? Am I tormenting myself by staying? Or should I be more daring and and make the decision to go? Or you get a a medical prognosis, a medical diagnosis that uh, is not very good. And then these days you go to see the doctor and they don't tell you what to do anymore. They say, here's your options. And then, of course, you do a Google search on you know, all your options and um, you're open up to a nightmare. Yeah. You say, what do I do? Do I take the operation? Do I take the chemo? Do I take the radiation? Do I eat apricot kernels? Yeah. Or do I wear crystals yeah. and pray? All valid options? Don't know. That's the, that's the key, I think. That 
If we if we do know if we do know how to be still, if we do know if we've 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 practiced this way long enough to be able to get behind all the activity, if we have a feeling for what it means to be the ocean that these ripples pass over. Yeah. Instead of being the ripples, instead of being the waves, to be the ocean, to be the awareness instead of the content of awareness. To be still to be silent, and then simply listen to these voices. Should I do this? Should I do that? If we know that stillness, we know that awareness, and then up comes the voice and say, you should go, and you don't move on it. Non-judgmental awareness, here and now, whole body, mind, uh, the thought comes up, you should go, you should leave, you should do such and such. There's a silent receptivity to it. You can see it, hear it, feel it, receive it. Maybe, maybe not. And then we can allow the opposite. No, I should stay. But the stillness isn't disturbed. The silence is not disturbed. You can see. And so this way, if you have this skill, then you can hold the dilemma, hold the quandary. And in, in fact, to be faced with some of these dilemmas, as I said in the beginning, can be can be uh, a very creative um, um, asset to practice. It really tests our awareness. How well established are we in awareness? Yeah. The tendency, of course, is to take sides. Yeah, that's the tendency. That's the tendencies of the mind. That's the habits of the mind. Yeah, that's the habits that that drive us around, the tendency, I want to know, I love knowing, I do, I absolutely love certainty. I don't like being unsure about things. I'm a control freak of the highest order. That's just the way I am. But if I believe that that control freakery, that tending of the mind to get off on being sure and certain, is really who and what I am, if that's all there is to me, then that's really difficult. Because life is just not not like that. Life is very uncertain. So we have this training. There's a commitment to refuges. I go for refuge to the Buddha. And what is the Buddha? The Buddha is that quality of awareness which doesn't have any compulsive tendencies for picking and choosing, taking sides. The Buddha is unshakably established in the middle way. Which the Buddha knows, the Buddha sees, the Buddha sees all tendencies of the mind as tendencies, taking sides for, taking sides against. The desire to know is just the desire to know. The Buddha just knows the desire to know is just that. There's that ripple across the ocean. It doesn't disturb the ocean. It's just the activity. Wanting to know is fine. Wanting to be sure is fine. If we don't grasp at it, well then it doesn't create the fear of being unsure, or the fear of failure, the fear of making the wrong decision. To be able to sit there and say, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. That's just true, that's all. That's all. I just don't know. Nothing wrong with that not knowing. To be able to have that awareness. Uh, It's not just comfortable and relieving, but also it gives us access to a new level of intuition. We can... We can feel intuitions, you know, silent inclinations and feelings about, well, maybe, maybe not. And we can listen to them. So this is a way of getting information. 
in, in the, this is the optimum way of contemplating such a quandary. If we don't have access to this stillness, this silence, well then it's very difficult basically to get by, really. Yeah, we're always driven by our conditioning. And so like I was saying last night, the the pain the, when we encounter the force of my way, what I want, yeah. my thoughts, my opinions, and as convincing as they can be, yeah. have we ever followed any of them and been taken to real contentment? Well, the best we get when we follow this force is a momentary gratification, a momentary relief from the pain of wanting to get something. We get it, and then we have momentary relief from it. What's more useful, long-term, is to be able to reflect upon the relativity of all this activity. I hope you can follow what I'm saying. That, That... if we are willing, like in our meditation, you know, the tendency is to want to follow thoughts and fantasies, past and future and so on. But instead of doing that, we inhibit that tendency and come back, come back, come back. Whole body, mind, here and now, judgment-free awareness, over and over again, come back, come back. Until we, the momentum of following the habits is inhibited sufficiently until the mind... Stop, drop. And then you experience something different, there's a shift. Now many of you already know this, but I'm... I'm going through it for those of you that don't know this, that, that if you don't know this experience of when the heart and mind come together and drop into a new level of stillness, a new level of clarity, where you can read the activity of the mind. You don't have to have opinions about what's going on in your mind. It doesn't matter what's going on in the mind. It doesn't matter how outrageous the fantasies are that happen through your mind. If we don't become them, if we don't get caught up in them, there's not a problem. But we don't even know that until we've actually accessed that stillness, that clarity, that spaciousness. If we don't have that experience, then yes, we're all still busy thinking about things as being ultimately wrong or ultimately right. And I'm a really good person because I have altruistic thoughts and I'm a really wicked, evil, bad person because I have terrible thoughts. Well, we're not ultimately bad people because you have terrible thoughts. That's... That's just another movement of the mind, another opinion, another bit of activity. What is it in which that movement is taking place? That's the question. So in response to this particular question of of whether to move or not move, uh, yes, of course, paying attention to to the, uh, relatively speaking, the important relationships Yes, ultimately we're all going to die and we need to let go of everything, that's true, but we're not dead yet and while we're still living we we actually need our friends and we need our support. So it's worth really valuing. But is my valuing attachment or is it appreciation? Well, if when you ask yourself that question the response comes up is, I don't know, very good, stay with that. Drop it. Come back, fall back, fall back, falling back, learning to fall back into the awareness which can hear this, I don't know whether that's attachment or appreciation, and we can study it. We can study that. I'm interested, I'm really 
interested in knowing whether this is attachment or whether this is just wholesome appreciation. Nobody else can really tell us that. We need that. We need to be able to read for ourselves. How do we read for ourselves? We need perspective. You know, like you're reading a book. You want to read a book. You put it up like this. <laughs> I'm looking at it. I'm looking at it. I am. I'm really looking at it. I can't see a thing. Not clearly. Well, I can just see a mess. And you go out. Still can't see anything. You go out. Still can't see anything. Go out. Still can't. Just a little bit of a blur. And then you. Know, oh. I can see it. And then you have that experience. Oh, I can see it. And once you can see it, you can see it. And that's it. That's the experience. Once you can see it, you can see it. And you go, oh, that's what that's about. Yeah. Yeah. So in our practice, we need to make the effort to get to that point where we have that feeling of, oh, I can see it in perspective. Now that's what that's about. And we know. And then we can read it. Now, if we can't read our condition then I would encourage making the effort whereby we are still inhibiting the tendency to follow the distractions of the mind, come back to the meditation object, come back to the meditation object over and over again until the momentum of distraction, the commitment to the distraction, is weakened sufficiently until the mind and heart come together and drop into a stillness where you, ah, oh, that's it, and then you can do it. And then you know for yourself. Okay, so such quandaries, such dilemmas are not a, um, they're not some sort of a, an indication that we're failing, rather an opportunity to exercise awareness. Can I abide as silent still awareness that has the recognition that I know I don't know? I can just be with that, rest in that space and feel the feeling, feel what comes up. Should I move? Should I not move? Don't know. Just wait for a while. But I want to know. Very interesting. And it is really interesting. Just And a wonderful feeling of freedom to, to not have to follow that. The pain of being dragged around by wanting is so excruciating. <laughs> it's so horrible. There's always, it's like a, a perpetual itch. And every time we scratch it, we get reinfected. Uh, we can just inhibit that tendency by way of experiment you know, and also trust and respect for the teacher. Yeah, it's like the Buddha recommended this practice and millions and millions of people have followed it since then and have seen benefit. And So we choose. It's a, it's, a, it's a sensible thing to trust in. It's been tried and tested for a long period of time by a lot of people. But it's not a naive grasping and believing. Yeah, it's, uh, yes, questioning. Yes, I'm not sure. I don't know. Maybe this restraining my impulse to follow the desire to be sure is just more neurotic repression of desire. I'm not allowed to feel my desires for anything. Uh, maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. How do we know? Yeah. Learn to find that place of stillness and perspective that we can fall back into, whereby we can read for ourselves. We've got perspective. Yeah. So this principle applies to lots of the issues we have in life, lots of the challenges and difficulties we have in life. And so if, if, uh, if you know what I'm talking about, well, that's great. If you don't know yet, well, then I encourage you to keep making that effort to restrain the tendency to follow the habits and to come back until we do have that experience. And then a lot of things become clear.
This one says, Ill will and desire can often develop so strong that rehabilitation becomes too late. Buddhist techniques, therefore, no longer can be healing. Or is there always time for the person to be healed? If they can't be healed and Buddhist practice has such powerful healing qualities, it seems a cruel world when foolish people have no more hope of realization even though they are trying so hard to be free. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that what I was just saying about knowing that we don't know is the place to start uh, with something like this. Um, uh, the Buddha himself, uh, as is recorded in the teachings, it spoke about the law of Kamma uh, as being very, very difficult to fathom. Yeah. We don't know uh, or the complexities of the law of Kamma, the law of cause and effect. And, what the causes are for what we're experiencing. So, so whether or not it's the case that somebody's um, habits of habits of ill will and desire are so deeply entrenched that they're not going to be able to let go of them, uh, I would say the truth is we don't know, and I certainly don't know. And I think that's also a very compassionate place to start. Uh, sometimes we become overly uh, clever in, in our Buddhist practice and have opinions about the law of karma and uh, people's suffering and, and so on and, and forget the importance that the Buddha lay on, on maintaining that that warm-heartedness that, that naturally cares. Yeah. Uh, it's a very natural thing. Yeah. And uh, my belief uh, is that, that my belief on this is, is it's not something I know, but my belief is that there is no human being, that is somebody who's truly human, who is not touched by compassion. And if you can feel compassion, well, then there can be healing. And it doesn't matter. Uh, it doesn't matter how long uh, a room has been dark. As soon as you turn the light on, the darkness is gone. It's not like saying, oh, well, it's been dark for so long that this darkness can't be overcome by light. Yeah. The power of light always overcomes darkness. That's just a law. Yeah. The power of compassion, that is that natural heartfelt wish, heartfelt wish that beings be free from suffering, can bring healing. Yeah. I don't in my, my, my conviction, my understanding my appreciation is it doesn't matter how long somebody's been suffering or over what they're suffering you know, I, I always appreciated that, that um, aspect of the Buddha's teachings where it talks about um, the Buddha's cousin Devadatta who was a seriously deluded human being and uh, even tried to get the Buddha killed you know, tried to cause a schism in the community which is a 
about as foolish as you can get, and they even try to get the Buddha killed. And um, and this is, uh, you know, in terms of heavy karma, that's, uh, you know, that's as bad as it gets. Well, I suppose if he'd actually succeeded in killing him, that would be as bad as it gets. Uh, really. Yeah. So, uh, so David Dutt is, uh, you know, on his death, well, his future was not bright. Uh, but it talks in the, in the tradition, it talks about eventually David Dutt is going to become a Buddha. Yeah. I, now, in terms of talking about these things, I think that's, that's, a, good, that's, a, that's a good story. Yeah, the the idea of eternal hell is just a really bad story in my books. It's just I you know anybody who propagates a story like that, um, you know, <laughs> they need the head read. <laughs> so again, well, basic Buddhist teaching: everything's impermanent. Everything's impermanent. everything that's born dies, and that's not just a, you know, something you've got to believe in. You can look at it. See, can you find anything that's permanent? Just spend the next week, twenty four seven, see if you can find something permanent. I remember asking a bunch of school kids about this and said, is there anything that's permanent? Can you think of anything that's permanent? It was actually a bunch of uh, Roman Catholic school kids. And this one little boy put his arm up and said, oh, I thought, oh, smart Alec, what's he going to say? And he said, the law of impermanence. Oh, <laughs> got me there. <laughs> yeah, good education, that kid. <laughs> Send your kid to a Roman Catholic school, that's what I say. <laughs> Everything's impermanent. If you get born in hell, you know, I often think about this. Well, maybe I'm just making a big mistake with all this thing. Maybe I'm going down. I think, well, it's not permanent. What a relief. I really, de- I really believe that. I, really, I, I cannot be convinced that there's anything permanent in the conditioned realm. And what a relief. You know, and that contrasts wonderfully with that, that really sad story that, that many of us got programmed with, that there is such a thing as permanent hell. You know, there, you know, this is certainly not the, not the Buddhist teaching and not a wise contemplation to hold on to the thought that anything is permanent. So the habits of indulging and ill will and uh, desire, we don't know. There's no way we can tell. Uh, and I, don't, I wouldn't believe anybody else either if they told you whether it's possible to be healed or to let go, to break out of it. Uh, I myself assume the disposition. I, I, I call myself a strategic optimist, not a naive optimist. A naive optimist is rather boring because actually the world is not necessarily all wonderful. You know, there are some pretty terrible things going around and we do have some pretty unwholesome things arising and ceasing in our minds. So life is not all wonderful and lovely. But if we allow our minds to become pessimistic, which is you know, not difficult given some of the things we experience, well, what effect does that have on the outcome? What, what effect does that have on our lives, to be pessimistic, you know, sarcastic, cynical, a kind of negative disposition, everything's going to be miserable? Well, we're free to think like that, but what is the effect? I mean, we're, all, we're totally free to spend our time thinking like that if we want to. Nobody has the authority to tell us to do otherwise. It doesn't matter where we are, who we're with, what we're doing. Nobody has the authority to force us to be anything other than cynical and negative and pessimistic. But, yeah, what is the result of that? So so myself, I, I choose to assume a strategy of optimism because I find that has a, a very helpful outcome. Now, that doesn't mean to say that I'm not alert to the possibility that my... My optimism is uh, not going, is going to be proven to be wrong. Maybe it's going to turn out to be worse than I thought. 
But I'm prepared to take that. I just find that to assume a positive disposition is helpful. And so with regards to our habits, we've all got habits. The karma that we've made, maybe in this lifetime we have memories of having done some seriously unskillful things. Um, What's the result going to be? Don't know. But what we can do, and that's true, you see, that's the, I'm not just saying this because this is putting a gloss on it. That's a fact. That's Dhamma. You want to see Dhamma? Just contemplate the fact that you don't know. That's true. That's a truth that we can always come back to. I don't know what the consequences of my actions are going to be and when they're going to bear fruit. Or what karma I've brought from the past. I don't know. Yeah, like in the, again, another aspect of the classical Buddhist teachings, the, the Buddha's right-hand man, Mahamogalana, uh, he uh, died the most horrendous death, hacked to bits by these, uh, these uh, scoundrels. Uh, horrible, miserable death. Mind you, his heart and mind were perfectly still. No trouble, no suffering. But his body was subjected to the most horrendous uh, murder, uh, classically because of his uh, previous actions in past lives. So we don't know what we brought with us. We don't know even the consequence of this life. But what we can do, what we can do is connect with a very sincere, a totally sincere wish to go in a certain direction. Now, now I was mentioning this to somebody the other day about the wish, for instance, the wish that I be free from suffering. Compassion is the wish to be free from suffering. May all beings be free from suffering. The Buddha talked about it, as he said, the image for compassion for Karuna is like a mother with her only child when the child is sick, writhing in bed with a fever. And What does a mother feel? The selfless wish, may the child be free from suffering. This wish, may the child be free from suffering. And then the encouragement is for us to feel this for all beings, including ourselves, equally. To feel this, may I be free from suffering, may my best friend be free from suffering, may somebody I don't really know, feel perfectly neutral about, be free from suffering, may somebody I downright detest be free from suffering. All beings equally, that's the the exercise, that's the effort that we're going to make. But we need to, we need to feel it here, really sincerely, genuinely. And this is where the healing can take place. This is where the healing can take place. And... And now, before, before we arrive at this feeling of selfless wishing I be free from suffering, maybe we need to think of somebody else. Maybe we have such a negative self-view. Often happens. Yeah, it's a process of conditioning that we grow up with. Yeah. Sometimes you, you catch the disease in the womb. You know, if your mother is already unhappy enough and infected with sufficient guilt and self-loathing, well then, you know, even in the womb, you're already picking up the chemicals, not to mention when you're drinking the milk and, and the suggestions that come in your early years of life. And so you can have this very, very strong feeling of lack of self-worth. And, and so when you try to think the thought, may I be free from suffering, it doesn't work. It just doesn't connect, no feeling, just cold, sterile. Maybe it's cultural. Cultural conditioning is actually quite a bit of it in this country. I remember I was leading a guided meditation at a Buddhist conference. Ajahn Sumaitu took me along to this Buddhist conference and I was asked to do a guided meditation in the morning. So I did this guided meditation on compassion. 
may I be free from suffering, may all beings be free from suffering, and led this meditation. And afterwards, somebody came up to me and, and said, we don't think like that in this country. So very interesting. <laughs> and uh, as it happened, she was a vicar's wife. <laughs> and a very nice person. I mean, I, I don't mean to be disrespectful. But just the conviction. I mean, she was putting me in my place. I was newly come, and I was uh, from New Zealand, very obviously. And my accent, and, and newly arrived in, in this, this wonderful country. The mother country, we call it, in New Zealand. This is the mother country. I was very pleased to be here. But she was just telling me, you know, we don't think like that in this country. Well, I feel sorry for you. I do. I don't mean sorry in a patronizing way. But if you can't really wish for yourself, may I be free from suffering, you're missing out on a lot of free energy, a lot of good energy. There's a lot of good energy there. There's a lot of warmth there. There's a lot of possibility for healing there it doesn't matter what you've done it doesn't matter at all yeah, it can always be met it doesn't matter what suffering you've experienced it can always be met with this wish may I be free from suffering and that wish is not just an intellectual thing that wish is an energy so as I was saying somebody was uh, mentioning to me uh, a few days ago about well is there more than just a wish well a wish is a force yeah. If you want to know about wishes, I mean, this, that's what prayer really is. That's, and that's why it's so powerful. And, and prayer is conscious wishing. Now, in theistic religions, it's always relating to an external authority. But in Buddhists, Buddhist teachings, we're not relating to an external authority. We're relating to the, to the heart itself. We can do this. We can exercise. We can generate the wish intentionally. We do it every evening. We're going to do it in a minute when we... You know, through the goodness that arises from my practice, you know, the chanting we do, the dedication of punya, this is a conscious wish that we generate. And there's a force there, and that force is just like light. It's just like light, you know. And just as you've got a physical wound, you know, and it's been all wrapped up in, in, in filthy dressing and for a long time, sometimes what you need actually is to just open it up to the sunlight. One of the best healing forces is sunlight. And likewise with our hearts, uh, uh, it can be hurting a lot of the time. And what we need to do is to open them up. It doesn't matter what ill will or desire or sadness or grief we're carrying. When we can shine the light of compassion, of selfless compassion, then yes, healing can take place. How long? How much? Don't know. That's all right. If we really want to know, that's more suffering. May I be free from the suffering of wanting to know. There's nothing that we can't meet with that wish. Now, as I was saying, if we have trouble generating that wish in a feeling way, well then, maybe what you've got to do is start by thinking about somebody you really care for. If you don't care for yourself, that's understandable. So you think of somebody else, somebody in your life. You know, mum, maybe, yeah. And then, very carefully, you, you dare to imagine mum suffering. You know, perhaps some suffering you know, some deep feeling of rejection or loss or failure, or, you know, that pain in the heart. And, and then you just imagine mother feeling that way. Yeah. And immediately the heart gives rise to this wish. There it is. It's not just an idea. You know, if you're so up in your head you can't feel the wish, well then 
you know, do whatever it takes to come down into the heart and feel that, that feeling that, that the Buddha gave the example of a mother with her only child. May they be free from suffering. Okay, so that's the feeling. That's the energy. And then we link it to the thought. Yeah. May they be free from suffering. May they be free from suffering. May they not experience the suffering. And we, we hold, try and hold. This is the meditation object. The feeling, this wish, and the thought. May they be free from suffering. Until we're ready and we turn it around and we, we feel our own suffering and we say just the same thing. Say, may I be free from suffering. May I, I, me, this being, may I be free from suffering. You know, if you've been thinking badly about yourself long enough, that might even feel weird. You might even think, oh, I'm not allowed to do this. If they teach you that, if you drink that sort of milk, well, then you can have such a thought. Well, you just get a bit daring, dare to think it, dare to feel it. May I be free from suffering, whatever suffering. May I be free from all suffering, all suffering. Now, that's radical. You know, may I be free from all suffering. Now, if you get a feeling for this, then it doesn't matter how long and how hard you've indulged in ill will and desire and confusion and fear, you can meet it with this and there will be a healing. Yeah. So I hope that's, that's helpful. I think perhaps I'd better leave it for that this evening. Thank you very much for your attention. Mm-hmm.